Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that I've got a spectacular opportunity today to talk to Judge Roy Sparkman. He's my first guest today. I think you're going to be thrilled to hear about his work and his background. He's uh, been a tri- was a trial lawyer for two decades. He's been a judge for eight years. He loves to teach and educate and equip religious leaders about their religious rights and how they are definitely being infringed upon. So he uh, got his law degree from Baylor. And he got a master's degree in uh, business administration, so he's extremely smart, ambitious. We have a lot in common except the academia part, so that's for sure. But <laughs> he loves the Lord, and he's with me today. Judge, welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm grateful for what you do through Faith yeah. Radio. Well, thank you. I'm excited about your book, A Pastor's Pit. It's a novel. So uh, before we get into that, I, I, I know my listeners are going to love to hear about uh, a little bit more about your legal background. Sure. Uh, I did. I have been licensed in Texas for 40 plus years now. I did uh, work as a civil trial lawyer and I was um, a district judge for over eight years. So I have other background that can kind of relate to religious liberty, including being on a school board for 12 years and president over seven. And then I was on the uh, Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee for nine years. And uh, one of my earliest experiences in the legal realm with religious liberty was when I was practicing law, and uh, my pastor was preaching through a passage in Scripture that talked about homosexuality. He had been given two uh, uh, gay books from our city public library that were children's books. Uh, one of them was uh, Heather Has Two Mommies, and he was preaching through that, and so he, he said that that is wrong, and, and he encouraged the city council to pass an ordinance to put those books in, in the back and require them to uh, request them rather than having them just put out front and promoting them. Mm-hmm. And the city council passed an ordinance uh, based on his encouragement and his preaching. And subsequently, a lawyer for ACLU was hired to uh, try to attack that ordinance. And my pastor was uh, served and summoned as both a witness for a deposition and a witness at trial. And I was the lawyer that accompanied for that. And after the, that hearing and that trial, I thought, well, this time the pastor was just a witness. But what if next time he's he's on the point of the era of the attack and he's the one being attacked for what he preached? And so that started me in this process a little bit of thinking about uh, what, where are our religious liberty rights going uh, and particularly what's going to happen with respect to our pastors. And that's the subject of a pastor's pit, the book that I wrote. And you know, I, I think that this is a, a very natural progression that the pastors are going to be very much on the blunt end of these attacks going forward. If you think about the history, the legal history, you know, we had the schools that were attacked. No, you, you can't say prayer. No, Gideons, you cannot put Bibles in the school. No, you can't even have prayer at football games. Then it moves to the county square where they would say, um, uh, no, you can't. You can't have a, a cross. You can't have the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. You can't have nativity scenes. And then they moved into the business sector. And so, for me, the very next logical step was: 
we're going to come after the pastors preaching from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the genesis of the book. And then I have two two children that are involved in, in church ministry. And I thought, you know, during their lifetime, I think there's a realistic chance that they are going to face the possibility of being charged with criminal activity because they are preaching the Bible and the gospel. And so those were all kind of some of the background that led up to me writing the book of Pastor's Pit. Judge, wouldn't you say that this is exactly the direction the enemy wants to go? Attack the churches, attack God's word, attack uh, what pastors and preachers are are declaring uh, as truth from the pulpit. I do think that it's very much, I mean, again, I think that in the progression of it, I think that many people that are hostile to religious faith will say, if we can silence our pastors, if we can keep them proclaiming the truth of God's word, then we have almost won our victory. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're almost there. And, uh, you know, I I think the second battle area really is going to be in the minds of our kids through the schools. And I, uh, I think that's a, a huge battleground that's been going on, like even since the 60s when the, the rulings came down about the uh, school and prayer. But but I think right now they're, they're working very, very hard uh, to attack the pastors. And I think this pandemic has brought that out. I mean, you know, I think if you look around at what's been happening through the pandemic, we have pastors that have been threatened with criminal action, fines or criminal action in California, Colorado, Illinois, Kentucky, Virginia. You know, you have churches that are being shut down. So I, I think that this is, is just the beginning and I think the pandemic gave an opportunity for those elected officials that might be hostile to religious faith to come after the church and the pastors. I think you're absolutely spot on. And it's, it is, you see religious freedoms being infringed upon right now at such an alarming rate that it's uh, troubling for all of us. I would love for you to maybe give some additional examples of, of where our religious freedoms are getting stomped. Sure. Um, well, for example, an Iowa school district um, had uh, taught transgenderism and homosexuality to students at all grade levels, including preschool. Mm-hmm. And part of that curriculum says everyone gets to choose if they're a girl, a boy, or both, or neither, or someone else, and no one else gets to choose for them. I mean, that's part of it in that school district. And in Orange County, California, the Board of Education issued an opinion that said, quote, parents who disagree with the instructional materials related to gender gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation may not excuse their children from this instruction. As a parent, uh, grandparent, and former school board member, that just terrifies me that that we are taking that right away from our parents, that they can no longer uh, go after uh, uh, protect their kids. And one of the areas, one of the things that I think I have seen from a legal perspective is that there has been perhaps a paradigm shift. Um, Originally, as I said, back in the 60s, where those hostile to religious freedom and religious faith started attacking things like school prayer and other things, they would go to the courts and say, okay, liberal courts, you tell these people that they cannot do that and take those rights away from them. Well, and and they did. What you're now beginning to see is that you have uh, uh, many actions by legislatures, by mayors, and by governors that are imposing it instead of by the courts. Uh, for for example, you have um, the U.S. Congress. They try uh, the Congress passed the Equality Act. They're trying to get it passed in the Senate, uh, which makes uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes, and it removes relig- religious exemption. Uh, you have uh, in Texas, 
part of the Bible Belt. We had some bills filed this time. They they did not get passed, but we had some some bills that were filed called by one uh, conservative election Act, action committee banned the Bible bills that would make it criminal conduct to uh, preach even for religious basis against gay marriage or uh, against gender identity. And, uh, you know, to think that those kinds of bills will be filed in Texas, to me, is a total paradigm shift because 20, 25 years ago, if somebody tried to file that, they'd be run out of, out of the state. So I, I think that that's part of the shift that we're seeing, both uh, in terms of the action and where they're coming from, but also the paradigm of the mentality of people to, to begin to accept more of these kinds of attacks. And then, then you have the mayors and the governors that have been shutting down churches. They have been threatening pastors. They've been doing those kinds of things. So I think the uh, attack is very real. Uh, you had a, uh, a church in Washington, D.C. that had to file a lawsuit to establish their right to hold outdoor church services. So, so previously they went to the Supreme Court to say, stop those religious people from doing those things. Now the shift is hopefully with a more conservative Supreme Court, and part of that is yet to be seen. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have the, the folks that are concerned about religious liberties going to the Supreme Court and saying, court, protect us from these attacks. These attacks are coming from various legislative groups, they're coming from mayors, they're coming from governors, and now we need the court to try to protect us. So that that has been a legal shift over the years that I have noticed and seen. Wow. So when I think of the recent Supreme Court case regarding the In God We Trust on currency, there's always going to be people taking shots. Um, and that case uh, is really in the last six months, wasn't it? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think this, these attacks are ever going to let up. Fair? I think that's very fair. And yeah. I think, you know, part of what you're seeing, you know, if you call talk about the pack the court movement, yeah. I think part of it is because previously those hostile to faith said, we go to the court, we take these rights away. Well, if it moves more conservative and, and again, we're, it's yet to be seen, but the Supreme Court, if they protect many of these rights, what you're going to want to see or what you're going to see is that they will then begin to move again. We've got to get control of that court again so that they'll take all these rights, religious liberty rights away again. Well, wow. that's um, it's very sobering to think about the direction this country is going regarding regarding religious liberties. I know that there's also other religious faiths that are losing their freedoms. Uh, I know we always think of religious liberties as Christian liberties, but what other religions are suffering and losing their freedoms? Well, I, th I think any any faith that uh, believes in the in the principle and the concept of religious liberty needs to be very concerned and very uh, aware at this moment. For example, in Houston, there was an Orthodox Jewish community that uh, uh, had been holding their Jewish services in in a building for a number of years, but the city of Houston demanded that they stop saying, oh, this violates some deed restrictions there. So the Jewish community had to go to court to get the protection. Uh, there in Collin County, there was the uh, Islamic Association of, of Collin County that bought some property and put on a, a cemetery. And so they uh, then the city denied their permit to build that cemetery. They, had again, had to go to court to, to try to get the, the ability to do that. Uh, Native Americans. I mean, we may disagree with kind of the principle of it, but uh, there was a Supreme Court opinion where two Native Americans were denied unemployment benefits 
because they ingested peyote as a, during a religious ceremony. Mm. And the court, the court actually said it was a sincere conduction of a religious ceremony. Not, you know, it's not like I'm, somebody's going out on the street using drugs. It's supposed to be part of their service. <laughs> so we may disagree with whether they should be using peyote or not. But so, so there's examples of Jews, the the Catholics, of course, little sisters. Uh, you have Muslims, you have Native Americans, and then you have Christians. So you could just about say anybody that wow. uh, represents faith, they yeah. are subject to attack. All-out attack. Boy, I tell you. Let me take a little break. Judge Roy Sparkman is my guest. He's written a book called Pastor's Pit, which is a fiction, but boy, it's a powerful story um, about religious liberties. We'll be right back with lots more with Judge Roy Sparkman. Everybody say hello once again to my guest, Judge Roy Sparkman. We've got a lot of people waving right now, Judge, just saying, hey, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. He's written a book called Pastor's Pit, and it, although it's a, a work of fiction, uh, there's a lot of real-life experiences. Uh, I'd love for you, Roy, to talk about the story of Pastor Preston. Sure. Um, you know, part of what I wanted to do was take the issue of religious liberty from what for most of us is kind of an intellectual area. You'll hear people that'll say, oh yeah, religious liberty is under attack. Oh, and and it, a lot of times the discussion is about a legal point. You know, what's the establishment clause or, or what's the free speech clause and so forth. And I wanted to take it and um, make the issue not academic, but on an everyday story that people can relate to. And that's what I tried to do with the pastor's pit. The, uh, the principle is that there there's a pastor that was preaching in Oregon, and uh, he was preaching from the Bible. He was preaching a very well-established biblical doctrine that salvation is through faith in Christ. And he was trying to make the point that um, no, no religion can save you, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, or Muslim. If you don't trust Jesus, then you are going to hell. And so the Muslim community got into an uproar. Uh, there was a, a statute, and I took actually the statute, the hate speech statute in Oregon, and, and virtually all states have hate speech statutes. I think there's 47 states plus D.C. that have hate speech statutes similar. And I added one word to the hate speech statute, and that was the word religion. And so the district attorney there said, you have engaged in hate speech against the Muslim religion for saying that if they don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. So then part of the book is that he, the pastor had a good friend, for his best friend from high school, who was a lawyer in Texas, and he called on him to help defend him, help represent him. And so the pastor got indicted, and they tried the case. And so I take the case all the way from uh, the pastor before he realizes he stepped into it till the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, I think one of the things that I wanted to do by doing it in story form was to help people understand the seriousness of it and the impact of it. It's one thing to say, oh, this pastor over here, he he got fined something. But it's another thing when you read and understand the impact and how easy it can occur and the impact on the pastor himself, 
his wife, his children, the church itself. It even goes into the school because students from the church are going to a school. And, and then how, how the impact is on the legal system as it goes through to see if that right is going to be protected or not protected. And uh, so I, I just wanted it to be a little bit more of a, a way that people could say, oh, wow, this could happen. And if you think about it, all that would have to happen is one word being changed to those hate speech statutes in the 47 states. Uh, you know, we all think hate speech statutes are great. No, nobody should engage in that. But the problem, if you add the word religion, is there's usually no de definition, and who's going to define it? So do we want district attorneys and judges all across the country saying, uh, no, you, you can no longer proclaim and, and preach that marriage is between a man and woman. That's that's hate speech now. And so I tried to hopefully make it uh, something that would be intriguing enough but realistic enough, even though fiction, that people could say, wow, I can see that happening. And that was part of the goal of the book. Fantastic. I'm sure it's riveting. Um, when we think of what is ahead now, because just this example that you gave with Pastor Preston, when when Bible teachers declare God's Word, and it is going to be uh, running opposite of what the culture is saying today, and they're preaching right from the Bible, well, what do you think the, the next step is going gonna, is gonna to be for these pastors? Well, um let me back up just a hair. Please. I think based upon that paradigm shift that I was talking about where now it appears that a lot of the attacks are being instigated by legislatures and the federal Congress and all of that and governors and mayors, the difference between that and when it was being forced upon us by the Supreme Court is we can go out and we can change our elected officials. We can elect different people to right. Congress. We can elect different senators. We can elect different mayors. We can elect different governors. And so I think all of us as believers and people believe that uh, support religious liberty can say we need to be activated. We need to get very active in those campaigns. We need to find people that support religious liberty. We need to join organizations that support them. We need to do those kinds of things. So that's partly for us lay people. But um, I, I think what the pastors are going to have to do, I think part of what I think or I hope will be a, an outgrowth of the book is an awareness of the tide that is coming so that we can do those kind of activism things. But secondly, that we can be prepared. How am I going to respond if a deputy sheriff comes up to me as a pastor and says, no, you can't preach that way anymore. Or how am I going to be respond if a district attorney says, pastor, you have violated our religious hate speech statutes in, in this state. And I'm going to, I'm going to indict you. How are we going to respond to that? I think one of the other things is I think a lot of times we as believers, um, we act like our faith is really in a, a president or a political party or in somebody else. And I think what we have to really stop and realize is where is my hope? My hope is in Christ. And my hope is not dependent upon those elected officials. And so, you know, uh, Paul says we're not like those who are without hope. And I think so we have to maintain the hope and the ability that, that Christ is going to prevail and that we uh, will have been blessed and granted this freedom for all of these years. We pray it continues for many more, but we understand and know that our hope is not in the legislature or those things or even whether I am not uh, arrested for preaching the gospel. I mean, I think we have been very, very spoiled in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thankful for that. 
But I think if you look at the New Testament, I don't think we can say, hey, Americans, we are entitled based upon Scripture to have no persecution. I mean, I don't think we could really take that position, nor can we look at people across the world that are persecuted and say, well, I'm sorry. I mean, we, we feel very badly for them, but I don't think we could say that, well, I'm, I'm better than you or I'm more privileged than you. I don't think that's the reason that we have been granted this privilege for so long. Uh, so I think we have to just be prepared for it and understand the consequences and know where our hope comes from. Yeah, such wisdom. Thank you uh, for that, Roy. Um, Judge Roy Sparkman's book is Pastor's Pit, and I know this has been kind of a heavy topic. I mean, this can be kind of discouraging to hear what's ahead for people who are standing up for faith. I think we're all prepared from what Scripture teaches to expect persecution, but I know you've got some encouragement for for people of faith who may be feeling just a little bit scared or a little bit overwhelmed right now. Yeah, And, and I think I would just piggyback on the point that I was making is, uh, you know, I think Scripture teaches us, uh, I mean, we're to be thankful in all things. We're to, we're to place our hope in Christ. Uh, you know, and I think we can learn from the examples of the New Testament. I mean, when people were uh, persecuted in the New Testament, they did not lose their, their faith, and they did not lose their hope. Uh, one time I was, uh, we traveled over to uh, what previously was Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic, and I was talking to a pastor there, and I said, oh, you've got to really feel good now that you're no longer persecuted by the government for your religious stand. And he said, really not. He said, uh, the people have become much more lax, and they're less committed now than when they were facing persecution. And so I think, you know, I, as I've talked to people that have gone through those kinds of experiences, they don't lose their faith, and they don't lose their hope. And so I think we can— we can take these things, and I think we can hopefully continue to battle them. I, I believe that the ultimate attack, even in our country, is some ways off in terms of being successful. We'll, we'll continue to have these these battles a lot over the next few years, and I don't think the battle is going to let up. But I think that, that perhaps God is giving us a period of time that we can uh, continue to be able to enjoy most of these privileges that we have had. And I think we, we should not neglect uh, the power of prayer. Uh, you know, God teaches us to pray, and I think we can pray fervently, and then we uh, frequently have to trust God with the result, knowing that He is a big God, and He has not been surprised by any of this, and He is trustworthy. And so I think it can be a word of encouragement and not a word of discouragement, but we also can be prepared, and we can try to do what we can do within our sphere of influence. Yeah. Roy, people are already calling the studio wanting to know how to get your book. So how can listeners connect with you online, and where can they pick up a copy of A Pastor's Pit? Oh, thank you. Uh, they can go to uh, my website, judgeroysparkman.com, okay. and uh, and it has a, a link that will take you there. Perfect. Or you could go to Am- Amazon or to Barnes & Noble. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Roy, for coming on the show. Really nice to meet you, and thank you for uh, your book and for taking time to be on my show. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for you what you do through Faith Radio. Appreciate it. Thank you. Judge Roy Sparkman has been my guest. Uh, Pastor's Pit is his book. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad to be having as my guest, Dr. Greg Heddington, as we continue our study on the book of John, a study that I am loving. I know many, many listeners are loving it as well because I hear from you and you're loving this study. Greg, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks. Let is, let's dig in. I can't wait for more of this study of John. All right. Well, we're studying the Gospel of John, and today we look at John chapter 13, which I entitled Loving to the Limit. And our central idea is Christ-like love is the trademark of a believer. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, introduction. The apostles, just like us, lived in a society that rebelled against God. They, just like us, learned lessons more quickly from observing someone do the right thing rather than being told what to do. It's similar to that cliche, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. So on the night before his trial, Jesus exemplifies love. He teaches about how one is to truly love, and then he exhorts his apostles to follow his example in loving others. Now, in our study, we often talked about key words in the gospel. For example, we've talked about two kinds of time. There's chronos time, which we live in. It's chronological time. And there's kairos time, which is a time that can break into anything we've got going. We'd call it a critical or opportune time. We actually call it God's time. We can break in any time he wants. And we've also talked about four kinds of love and how the word agape was coined by the Apostle Paul and used by John to mean God's love for us. Well, both time and love are mentioned in the first verse of the uh, chapter 13. And our title for this lesson comes from the latter part of verse 1, which says, Jesus loved his apostles to the end, which is translated from the Greek word estelos, which literally means to the limit. In other words, he gave everything he had. Now, in our previous chapter, chapter 12, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and was hailed as Messiah by a large group of Jews who lined the streets. It was also the high water mark for the 12 who were hoping right along with the crowd that this was the beginning of the end of Roman oppression that had been crushing them for years. In chapter 13, we look at another day, which is forever immortalized in the life of believers, which is a Thursday known now as Maundy Thursday, and it commemorates Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Furthermore, it celebrates a new commandment or mandate, since the word Monday is the Latin word for mandate, a new mandate which Jesus gives to the twelve and all his followers, which is, quote, love one another as I have loved you. By this, and again, Jesus demonstrates love in action, not just in words, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Roman number two, the event. So we're talking about what is called the Upper Room Discourse on Monday, Thursday, about 12 hours before the crucifixion. Jesus is with his 12 for the Passover meal, and verse 2 says, Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Now, the writer John makes it plain that Judas is a willing perpetrator, even though it originated from supernatural sources, as does all sin. But rather than stopping Judas, the omnipotent God allows the scenario to play out as Judas continues to make flawed choices. And there is a lesson here for us as well. 
like Judas, we are tempted by the evil one daily, constantly, to go the, the wide road, the easy route. But it's up to us to make the tough, right decisions. Ultimately, we cannot put the blame on others, no matter how difficult our circumstances. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to guide us and his Savior to empower us and forgive us. Now, what happens next is truly culturally inappropriate behavior. Foot washing was commonplace in the Greco-Roman and first century Jewish culture before a meal as a gesture of hospitality when one first entered a house. But never in Jewish, Greek, or Roman society would a superior wash the feet of someone deemed as their inferior. In fact, according to some Jewish sources, Jewish slaves were even exempt from that job in their own homes and left it up to be done by lowly Gentiles. The reluctance of the apostles to volunteer for this job is culturally understandable, but because of what Jesus is about to do, their sense of how things should be done begins to fall apart. It's the same in every culture. Whichever race of people is in the majority, they are the ones to ask someone from a minority race, whom the majority would consider somewhat inferior, to perform certain lowly duties. Now, notice Scripture says, as Jesus began to wash the apostles' feet, not one of the apostles objects until it gets to Peter. And in this extraordinary incident, we see the condescension of the tri-creator of the universe, God himself, or as Philippians 2, 7 says, the one who took on the form of a servant, then he washes his feet. I mean, it's truly, it's almost like science fiction. It's beyond mm. our imagination. Yeah. Now, for someone to claim something verbally means nothing unless it occurs. Jesus verbally expresses his love for them and then proves it over and over until his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Actions always speak louder than words. As verse 1 says, he loved them to the limit. The Apostle Peter, who, to say the least, had a problem with temperance, I mean, when it comes to controlling his mouth, as well as his action largely due to his pride, Peter is shocked by this cultural reversal of the natural order of things, what he says in effect. Lord, what are you doing? I mean, I know there's some brothers here who need a little washing. I'm not going to mention names. I mean, we've been together for three <laughs> years, but uh, mm -hmm. they know who they are. Uh, because we know their habits. But, Lord, you shall never, ever act like a lowly inferior and wash my feet. This reminds me of some non-believers I know who are so proud of their ability to save themselves without anyone's help that they instinctively resist any suggestion that they might need forgiveness or being saved, and certainly not by God. This incident also elicits another important theological subject, which is Roman numeral three, eternal security. There are many people who think they can lose their salvation, their eternal security in the Lord. Therefore, people who believe that live in constant fear of committing that one fatal sin, whatever that might be, that would send them to hell if they were to die suddenly as if they were like out on a golf course and struck by a, a bolt of lightning or run over by a garbage truck. I mean, who knows? But they want to be ready. So here's the question. How often does a person need to be saved? Once? Every time he or she sins? right before they die, just to make sure? These verses explain the symbol of the two washings Jesus gives. First, a person must be completely washed once, and that's the metaphor of the death of Christ on the cross once and for all for us, for sin. And second, 
After receiving that washing by grace, the only requirement is regular washings of confession, repentance, thanking the Lord, and getting back on the right path. Now, why do we interpret these verses like this? Well, because that's literally what they mean. So when Jesus uses the word wash in verses 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14, he uses the Greek word nipto, which means to wash a part of the body. However, in verse 10, Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, the Greek word there for bathed is lavo, which is in the perfect tense, which indicates a completed action. So in other words, if the person is bathed all over, that's salvation. That's eternal security. Now, that may all be Greek to you, which, in fact, you know, it is Greek, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, well, the point is, we cannot earn salvation. We, therefore, cannot lose it when we didn't earn it. Let me repeat this again. We cannot earn salvation. We, therefore, cannot lose it when we didn't earn it. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, so that no one may boast. Here's some other verses that assure a believer of salvation. John 5:24, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. John 10:28, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will grab them out of my hand. John 11:25. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And friends, those are just the promises out of the Gospel of John. Now, if you don't feel worthy of God's love and forgiveness, then you're on the right track. We will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness, and we will never be bad enough to prevent it. Let me say that again. We will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness. And we will never be bad enough to prevent it. Mm. That's the good news. So if you know anybody who's struggling with whether or not their salvation is certain as they continue to make their daily confessions, then share those verses with them. So when Jesus says he must wash Peter's feet, at first, Peter is offended and too proud to have Jesus serve him in such a lowly manner. But when Jesus tells him he must be washed or he cannot be a part of Jesus, Then Peter swings to the other extreme as if to say, Lord, I think you must have misunderstood me. Did you think I said I did not want to be washed? No, 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 no. What I meant was I want you to give me a total washing, although I'm not sure exactly what that means, because I will do whatever it takes to be a part of you. Hmm. Roman numeral four, the washing of others. After the washing, Jesus asked them, do you understand what I've just done for you? And it's in it. Notice it's a rhetorical question because notice that Jesus does not even wait for a response because he knows that Peter's going to say something like, "Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I uh, no, 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 Lord, I have no idea what you've just done." Well, Jesus knows he would say something like, "So he says, since I'm your Lord and I've just washed your feet, so you also must wash one another's feet. You see me do it, now you do it." Jesus is talking about serving others. In verse 34, he makes it even more clear in one of his most significant commands that he ever gives to the twelve or to us 
when he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, which one of the four words for love in Greek does Jesus use here? Well, he uses the word agape, which St. Paul redefined to mean God's unconditional love for us. Now, all religions agree that it's a good idea to love others, and even in the law of God in Leviticus 19, verse 18, God commanded that the Israelites love their neighbors as themselves. However, by the way that the Jews showed such poor behavior toward Gentiles, they must have believed that their neighbor referred only to other Jews. But Jesus intends for them to also love their enemies in order to represent his love to everyone. By the way, how are we doing in loving our enemies, those with whom we don't like? Roman numeral five, how do we love and serve others practically? Well, how do we do that? Well, we can speak the good news to others, and like Jesus, we can do the good news, show and tell. I know some people say, I'd like to do something for the poor, but what do I do? Well, at the beginning of January this year, 2020, statistics showed that in my city, in Dallas, one in four people went to bed hungry. And after the first day of the pandemic, again, back in 2020, the food banks in Dallas were empty. I don't know about other places in the country, but money is coming into our communities from the federal government, and yet only one in seven Americans are able to pay the rent. So ask your missions pastor at your church how you can maybe help somebody else or volunteer. Now, right or wrong, sometimes I read statistics about people coming to the Lord or about sacrifices that believers make, but it helps to personally know people who are sacrificially loving others as Jesus told us to. So, Bill, in a minute, I'd like to give one of those stories of sacrificial love from someone who was there. Oh, I'd love to hear that, Greg. This is fantastic. Let's take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Dr. Greg Heddington as we are in our study of John. And if you have your Bibles open, of course, we're in chapter 13. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. glad to continue our study in the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington. So far, we are uh, moving along nicely through the book of John. We're in chapter 13 right now. And uh, hopefully, time permitting, I want to hear about the story you mentioned right before the break of a sacrificial love. So let's get back to it, Greg. Well, we're in Roman numeral six. It's called A Story of Loving as Jesus Commanded Us To. My wife, Carrie, and I have recently uh, heard a story of the kind of supernatural sacrifices that believers are making today. Carrie and I went to a small dinner recently at a friend's house here in Dallas who was hosting the bishop of the Church of Pakistan who was visiting from his country. Now, you may know that Pakistan was formed as a Muslim country in 1947, and anyone who's faithful to Jesus 
that lives in that country is likely to be followed, censored, perhaps even beaten, imprisoned, or possibly killed simply for following Christ. That always makes me wonder about myself. Do people around me know that I am a Christ follower, and how would they know? Mm. Well, the bishop told us that he had been worshiping in a small church in one of the poorer sections of Pakistan when the church building was suddenly surrounded by a mob of several hundred angry Muslims shouting anti-Western slogans and anti-Christian chants. Well, it's because they still equate Christianity with the West, even though the majority of Christ followers now live in the geographical south or eastern part of the world. But the mob continued to grow in size to over 3,000 people surrounding this church as the believers inside the building, including the bishop, huddled together to pray and prepare for their death, which they knew would typically occur if the mob broke inside and beat them to death with clubs or the mob would chain the door shut and set the building on fire. Incredibly tense situation, to say the least. In the midst of the yelling and screaming, the people inside could vaguely hear a, a voice in somewhere in the outside above the noise, and in a few minutes, everything went quiet. One of the church members walked back slowly to the main entrance, which had been locked, and cautiously peeked outside and discovered the crowd had left. The believers slowly inside, cautiously filed out of the building and went to their homes. The bishop, who was inside, later found out that just when the mob was about to set the building on fire, a man began to yell out to the mob. He was in the midst of them and say, what are you doing? Why are you so angry at these Christians? These are the people who sweep our streets, who take out our garbage, who clean our wounds in the hospital. These are the ones who do the lowly jobs that you won't do. And they risk their lives living in the most dangerous parts of this town where Al-Qaeda lives. They all sacrifice lives, their lives helping others, so what are you doing? And the crowd dispersed. Now, this kind of humble serving by believers has been going on, and it's been th true throughout the, the world ever since the first century, in every country in the world. And like our central idea of this lesson, Christ-like love is the trademark of a believer. Now, in the five North African countries, three of which I've been to today, it is the Christ followers who make less than 1% of the population, and they are the ones who clean up the garbage and the waste from the streets and the homes. They care for the sick and the elderly. They feed the hungry. They show mercy to the mentally deranged and compassion to the crippled left to beg on the streets, and finally, to leave the babies that are left there to die. Wow. As Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, a few years ago, so many Americans were adopt adopting unwanted babies from Russia and Romania that other Eastern Bloc countries, uh, that some of these uh, uh, other countries passed laws in the Eastern Bloc that Americans could no longer adopt their children. And I'll never forget one Russian journalist writing this article. Of course, it was translated into English so I could read it. And this is what this Russian journalist said. Why not let them adopt our children? If the Americans want to adopt children who are sickly, have special needs or AIDS, 
and they want to spend agonizing months and years traveling back and forth to our country, endlessly waiting and spending as much as $30,000 because we don't want them, let the Americans adopt our children. Now, we know that not all these adopting parents are Christ followers, but as Jesus says in Matthew 25, as you've done it to the least of one of these, you've done it unto me. In conclusion, we do the right thing in life not just because it makes us feel good, and it does, but sometimes doing the right thing will cause us to suffer. We may lose relations with people whom we thought were friends, but we never do this in our own power. The Holy Spirit gives us God's power and direction and desire to do it. We speak and do the loving thing because it is the right thing to do. And Jesus gave us this commandment when he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we do our best to serve others humbly and sacrificially in the name of Jesus, our witness through the power of the Holy Spirit will change neighborhoods, cities, countries, and generations. Well, how about the people I don't like? Well, sometimes we have to fake it until we make it. I mean, we pray for the love of Christ to come through us. Caring for people we don't like is never easy. But one thing to remember is we will love better when we remember the love of Christ for us, what he did for us, to forgive our selfishness, our sins, our cruelty. In fact, those things that I don't really want to think about. Have you ever said to yourself, I don't think I'm doing enough to please God. I, 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 just, I don't think I'd love him enough. Well, here's my response. Your problem is not that you don't love God enough. Your problem is you don't really understand how much God loves you. If we truly understood how much God loves us, as proven to us on the cross, then we can't help but love him. It doesn't become a duty. When we love God and let him love us, and we look at him and love him back. Friends, that's called worship. And that's the, that's the true faith that we're following. Chapter 13 says Jesus loved his own to the limit. So we do our best to love others because Jesus commanded it, but also out of our gratitude, our joy for Jesus giving us all he had. As the hymn says, Jesus gave his all, all to him I owe. Now, even though we try to love others, we tend to hold something back to protect ourselves. Jesus did not hold on to anything for himself. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued toward the cross despite being betrayed. We love until we're rejected. Jesus loved in spite of rejection. We love up to the point, up to the limit. Jesus loved to the limit. Loving others is never easy. It's always risky. But when we know what we know about the love of Jesus for us, we can afford to take risks. We live by faith in Jesus, and faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Loving others is always a risk, but that's our life in Christ. So here's our three take-home questions. Number one, am I known as a loving person? Number two, am I willing to tell people about Jesus and show more love to others than I did a year ago? That's what we call show and tell. (laughs) And number three, if I am not telling more people about Jesus— are showing more love than a year ago, then what is hindering me from loving one another as Jesus has loved us? Bill, I I think that's enough for today. That's a great, great reminder. We've only got about a minute left, Greg, but sacrificial loving others 
for the sake of Jesus, has been part of our faith for a long time, hasn't it? Well, one of the best-known ancient quotations regarding the sacrificial lives of the early church comes from the writings of the Roman emperor Julian, who in the 4th century wrote about how he regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. And in this quotation, he refers to the Christian faith as atheism because we, we only believe in one God. So here's what the Roman emperor said. Atheism, that's us, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who's a a beggar and that the godless Galileans, he's referring to believers there, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. End of quotation. So, Bill, the importance of this quotation is that ever since the early church, believers around the world have taken the words of Jesus to heart and have reached out with sacrificial love to all people in every possible way. Yeah, fantastic. Greg, thank you so much. I'm loving this study, and you are just doing such an amazing job of, of teaching us from the book of John. Thank you once again. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.